This episode of the MedTalk podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation Expo, the UK and Ireland's leading event for medical device manufacturing. Save the date for MedTech Innovation Expo 2024, taking place on the 5th and 6th of June at the NEC in Birmingham. For more information, please visit www.medtechexpo.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk podcast, where we discuss the latest issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, a group content manager of Rapid MedTech, and on this special episode for World Mental Health Day, I am joined by Themia's co-founder, Dr. Amelia Molympicus, who was inspired to start the company following her friend's struggle with mental health. So on this episode, we talk about the video game aspect to the Themia platform the role of AI in addressing mental health concerns, as well as attitudes towards mental health provision as part of a wide range of conversation relating to AI's use in helping to treat mental health. So, Emilia, thank you very much for joining us on the MedTalk podcast. Um, We're recording this ahead of World Mental Health Day. Um, But uh, first of all, can you actually tell us a little bit about yourself and Themia? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be part of the podcast, especially for World Mental Health Day. So uh, I'm Emilia. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Themia. We founded Themia about three and a half years ago now, back in April 2020. But before that, I actually had a very different background. I was a researcher for about 12 years. I spent most of that time at UCL, where I did a PhD and several postdocs in neuroscience and linguistics. And I had the pleasure of working with all kinds of patient populations from Alzheimer's through to depression and schizophrenia, always looking at how they used language and using that essentially as a biomarker for cognitive function. I ended up uh, leaving academia despite loving my research uh, when I saw my best friend develop depression. And unfortunately, I witnessed her try and fail to get the help she needed in the NHS and then privately And unfortunately, that um, ended up in her trying to take her own life uh, just after seeing a psychiatrist. And uh, I was the one who found her at her house when that happened, which, as you can imagine, is both a very fortunate and very unfortunate event. Um, It should never have happened in the first place. But that's really what pushed me to look at the mental health care system in more detail. And I realized there was... um, very big need for more objective measures of mental health. And that's kind of where Themia came about, trying to bring all the knowledge I had from academia and research into the hands of clinicians who were really dealing with kind of the tools they had to hand were the same they've been using for the past hundred years, uh, which is quite shocking. So yeah, that's how Themia came about. Um, yeah, very happy to tell you a bit more. Yeah, yeah I was going to say before we move on to talk a bit more about Themia, how's your friend now? Unfortunately, she's at this point still institutionalized. She uh, was institutionalized when I found her, then she came out for a bit, then she's back in at the moment. So not doing too great, but uh, I'm hoping that she'll be better soon. Well, I'm so, so the way and uh, pass on her best, best wishes to her if you, if you possibly Thank you. can. Yeah. Um, but I would like to actually go into a little bit about um, your research, actually, because yeah. it's, it's not 
just how, how can I put it? Not just mainstream mental health conditions that you that you covered. The a lot there seems to be lots of neurodegenerative. Yeah, sorry. Let me say that again. Neurodegenerative diseases that you, mm-hmm. that you were covering. I'm yeah. I'm I'm quite curious as to how that. I mean, obviously, you it's focused on what goes on in the mind, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm quite curious to see how you research from say looking at something like uh, dementia can relate to, to to mental health. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit in layman's terms, if you possibly can? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I guess just to kind of highlight with with themia, we do a lot more than just what what my research did. We do bring in a lot of other areas. So we look not just at language, but also at facial expressions and different other things as well. And I can go into that in a bit more depth later. But regarding my research itself, um, that was very much language focused. And so um, when you think about how the brain functions and how it works when we're trying to understand how it works typically we look at populations where things don't really work like there are problems and that disordered thinking essentially helps us to understand ordered thinking so this is actually quite common so you see it very frequently in in all areas uh, of research and language being being one of them so what we looked at really with language as a biomarker you can split it into two different areas well, there's probably more, more than one, but broadly speaking, there's two. So you have the acoustics of somebody's voice. So you're looking more at the sound properties. So the physical, um, you know, sound waves of somebody's voice. So there you can look at pitch, you can look at intonation changes. So, you know, like flatness of the voice or loudness levels. Those are actually very strongly correlated with different mental health conditions and different physical conditions as well. So say when somebody has a cold, you may naturally assume that they may be a little bit hoarse. What um, many people don't know is, say, if you have depression, your um, intonation is actually quite flat compared to when you don't have depression. Um, with Alzheimer's, obviously, there's a lot of pauses and ums and, st- you know, stumbling um, of words. So that's kind of looking at the uh, intonation and the, the sounds themselves. What I did was look actually more at the content. So I would analyze the structures that patients put together or look at how they understood language structures. And it's that understanding or putting together of structures that actually becomes very fragmented in different health conditions. And that helps you understand how far kind of down the line of cognitive decline somebody may be. So in Alzheimer's, one of the things I looked at is um, when I give you a complex structure. So there's multiple, say, I show you a picture and there's multiple people in the picture um, who are all doing slightly different things. And I ask you, show me, you know, the person, like, show me the boy who is being kicked by the girl or something like that. I used wrong verb there. No, <laughs> like no, no. Being I mean, kissed. Let's yeah. say being kissed by the girl, not being kicked by the I mean, girl. You never know, really. <laughs> you never know. But let's just do a positive verb there. Right. Uh, but there's multiple kind of interactions. There are multiple people doing stuff. Um, actually, when you have Alzheimer's, that interpretation of passive construction actually starts to break down quite early on so you see them actually doing operating at chance level in whether they've understood that question um, or not so it's things like that so looking at complex structures um, that's kind of one area you can also look at the meanings of words do they understand them how do they produce them is there more positive more negative connotations etc so you can probably see i can go on about this for a very long time yeah that, <laughs> of course but there was a couple of little light bulbs that went off in, yeah. in, in my head then particularly yeah. when you you speak to people that are close to you whether that's yeah. via whether that's on the phone and you can just hear something different in the voice where you probably suggest that well they sound a bit tired they sound a bit drained yeah. and that could be you know, that could be a classic signal of actually how 
how can I put it? Like they're going through the mill in, in, yeah. in, in, in a mental sense, and and you and you see it when you know when people type out a, a response to a text message, and you just think that didn't strike quite the right tone. There's, I mean, yeah. I'm, it, would that would it be fair to say that you you probably look at those kind of things, but on a more sophisticated level? Uh, yeah, kind of. Yes. So the way we we say it is basically psychiatrists and psychologists are trained in more depth, let's say, to analyze things that we typically uh, instinctively probably know about each other. Like if you see someone and you know them very well, you know how their facial expressions work or you know how they sound. And one day, you know, you look at them and you're like, hmm, something's off. You can't really put your finger on it, but um, that can actually be studied quite, uh, you know, quite in depth. And that's kind of the research we've taken at Themia and kind of augmented with the help of AI to look even more beyond what human eyes can see to what AI can actually pick up. And so you're just augmenting that already existing research. And much of that research is, you know, relying on kind of human perception. That's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll come on to the role that AI can have uh, in a moment, but I'm, I'm I'm curious to find out about your specific AI or machine learning, because I'm wondering mm-hmm. what what exactly have you managed to train Themia to do? You know, in, in terms of assisting uh, medical professionals when it when it comes to uh, diagnosing you know, depression and or other mental health illnesses. Yeah, absolutely. So what Themia does is we combine three different types of data that we look at. So one is probably understandably, it's it's voice, it's speech that comes from my background. So there we look at how you sound when you speak, but also what you're saying. But the second stream we look at is video. This is everything we can pick up from a smart device camera. It can be your eye gaze patterns. So where are you looking on the screen? It can be your facial expressions. So we don't look kind of broadly at the face. We look at little pinpoints on your face and how those are moving. So we might look at the angle of your of your mouth. We may look at the uh, angle of your eyebrow or how the sides of your eyes kind of are moving. Um, and up, also upper body movements, twitching. So that's the second stream. And then the last one is broadly speaking behavior. So this is everything else we pick up while you interact with us. And this could be things like your typing behavior, swiping on your phone, clicking if you're using a laptop, but also reaction times, mistakes, etc. And for us, these are the kind of three different data streams we look at, and they're really, really rich. But the way we found to gather these data, because we're dealing with patients, most of whom don't really want to interact with anyone, we developed little video games that allowed us to tap into those things. So we, our games encourage you to speak, they encourage you to describe images, they encourage you to do memory games, etc. And so that's how we get the data we need. And then what we've been able to do is we've been able to actually see through these data, our AI models can pick up whether someone may indeed have something like major depressive disorder, but also generalized anxiety. Most recently, we've started branching out to ADHD as well. But more interestingly, we've been the first company to be able to look at the symptoms of these conditions as well. Ultimately, a clinician doesn't necessarily need much help in diagnosing. If you're a GP, probably you will need a lot more help. But if you're a psychiatrist, you don't really need that help in diagnosing depression. You need help in understanding what the particular symptoms are, because that's ultimately what you want to treat. So you want to see if the person has fatigue, mood swings, a loss of interest in doing stuff, attention problems, concentration issues. And that's what really you're treating. So that's what we measure. And then what we're able to do is we can tell the clinician, okay, these are the particular symptoms. This is their severity. 
You decide what you want to do in terms of treatment and we'll help monitor whether that treatment is having an impact on the actual symptoms. For GPs, you can go a little bit earlier than there. We can help a little bit more with the actual assessment of the condition. Um, but we've also recently expanded beyond clinical health into mental well-being as well. So you can probably imagine if you have an AI model or, or a system that basically through just 20 seconds of speech can detect whether you're fatigued or whether you're stressed, that becomes very relevant to a lot of people, mm. not just people with depression. So we've actually started um, selling these wellness level tools also to um, employee assistance uh, providers, so EAP providers, uh, but also to large employers, to mental wellness providers, so they can tap onto that slightly lighter touch element that is relevant to a lot of different people as well, who may otherwise be considered healthy. Uh, they don't have a mental health condition, but they still want to track their fatigue and their mood issues. I, f- I find it fascinating because it actually looks as though it's it's a it's a tool that basically that can basically accelerate the rate to find out that you have, you know, that you have depression or, or, yep. or whatever. Because, for example, I mean, you can uh, having been through the system in, in CBT, when you actually try to tell someone that there's something wrong with you when they don't necessarily know, it's actually hard to articulate in the first place. So just exactly yeah. what's going on inside you. So having a tool that can actually just pick up traits like that, I can imagine, is incredibly useful for someone who's on the other side of, other side of the uh, other side of the desk, shall we say? Um, but I'm I'm curious in terms of how this can be used as an educational tool as well, because I imagine mm-hmm. that the the scope there for actually get you know for it to be disseminated throughout the population in terms of actually identifying people who are who are struggling in in, in one way or another i can imagine that the the, the capacity for for this to be used is, is absolutely massive yeah absolutely i mean you can look at it at so many different levels one of the things that i find really fascinating um is a tool like this that basically provides objective handles or objective data points that someone may have a mental health condition is effectively showing that that mental health condition is real, quote unquote, but that it's not just in the person's head. You can point to it with statistics. You can point to it and say, look, these tools are picking it up. That alone could do such, um, could have such a big impact on mental health stigma and you know, the, the bias we find, like when uh, a woman goes, for instance, to a GP and complains about mood or complains about something, uh, more often than not, they'll just ask, oh, you know, are you expecting a period or are you close to the menopause? They'll dismiss that very, you know, very frequently. Um, so that's not just stigma, it's also bias. Um, when you have a tool like this, you could actually help to negate that or you could help overcome that. It's also very helpful for um, showing individuals they may indeed need a bit of help because sometimes people don't want to actually reach out for help. This could help in kind of showing, oh, it's okay to reach out for help and this is real and, you know, you could get um, a lot of support for what you're going through, essentially. So there's all those different layers. And then there's also layers of helping, you, you mentioned earlier, people who may not be able to express themselves as as well. That includes children. It also includes the elderly people. It includes people who can't speak the language very well. It also includes um, quite, not exactly niche, but quite uh, lesser spoken about individuals, say highly autistic individuals who just are non-verbal. Um, if you have other ways of getting at the condition, say of depression or anxiety by looking at their eyes instead of relying on just what they're saying, that's super powerful and could have such a big educational impact as well. 
I mean, it feels like there's a little bit of um, confirmation bias in what you're saying to me here, because you, when, like, uh, it, it's fair to say that people are talking about it a lot more now. I think mm-hmm. attitudes are changing in that sense. I certainly, amongst the group of male friends that I have, we, I think we talk about it probably way more than our than our dads have, you know, 30 years ago, for example. I don't think it even would have factored in their vocabulary. But whenever one of us has been struggling, for example, you get, you always hear phrases like just something not right in their eyes or the fidgeting mm-hmm. or like people are starting to pick up on, on these kinds of things. Whereas, mm-hmm. I, but I'm also curious about the video game element because as you say, it's, a, it's another way of expressing yourself. Is it a case mm-hmm. of almost like putting a controller in someone's hand and, and the way they go? Or can you, can you just give us a little more insight into that? Is it as simple as you being asked to play a video game? Yeah, it, it is actually. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to build like super, super complex, sophisticated video games because we've been focusing more on the AI side. But we have built like very small little card games, um, games where you teach a little alien, like he's a friendly little blue alien, you teach him how to speak your language. And so you're teaching him words, he's learning, he's making mistakes, you're correcting him, etc. It's our way of getting voice data from you. But it literally is, you basically get a link, you follow it on your phone, and it just opens up on your phone and you just do it. And it takes, for the clinical assessment, it takes about 10 minutes. For the wellness assessment, it takes about 20 seconds. So we just get you to do something for 20 seconds, and that's all the data we need to provide kind of fatigue level scores or stress level scores. Um, the full clinical assessment is a little bit uh, lengthier, but yeah, it really is as simple as as just playing a game. Well, I think uh, I, I was actually talking to one of my colleagues before we before we started this, and he's a and he's a big gamer, and he just wants to know do I get, you know do I get a controller? <laughs> like that. He just, yeah, he, he he just wants to know that element. Of it, but it, it's it's actually really really insightful to hear that it's just as simple as that. It's something that something something that someone can do in a, you know. It, they do it in everyday life. It's not. It's not like there's no um, stigma like going to the doctors about it. For example, it takes that element exactly. out of it. Was that a particular way in that you wanted? You wanted to eliminate as much stigma as possible when you were developing this. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know. I was. I have to say that I was a little bit biased coming in because I am a massive gamer. Like my my parents like to tell me that before I could actually speak i was playing um game boy like the old like brick game boy <laughs> I remember, uh, like I, I remember. yeah i was playing super mario before i could talk but uh I, I came in kind of like being an avid gamer but i actually had worked with a gaming company um prior to themia for about a year while i was still doing my research i um worked as an advisor for a gaming company and i was helping them basically make these uh the game levels progressively harder based on neuroscience and linguistics. And at some point I realized um, that in so doing, you could actually manipulate the game mechanics a little bit to target a particular type of dementia. And so I mentioned this to them and I was like, well, actually my research is looking at dementia right now. You know, if you tweak this a little bit, you could help spot this type of dementia way earlier. You know, would you would you want to try it? And they were just like, no, don't. we don't really want to do that. You know, we just want to focus on making money and making this work. Mm. I said, okay, fine, great. But it was kind of that light bulb moment. And then this happened with my friend and I realized, well, I've seen this work in, or that it could work with games. And she was also an avid gamer. And even when she was very depressed, she would play video games. So I thought, well, why not try it? And maybe this is a really nice, simple 
non-stressful way of engaging with people who do not want to engage with almost anyone. And actually, it worked really, really well. So we've had over 90% engagement with people with depression, with anxiety, also healthy individuals. Actually, people with depression respond better than healthy individuals to this. They stick with it a lot more. They they It becomes part of their routine and they get a lot yeah. of comfort from it. And it's non-threatening in any way. Like we built it so it's beautiful, it's calming. All the colors are specially chosen so that they produce calming effects. And people seem to really, really like it. So it's now been tested on almost, well, over 6,000 people across various languages, various geographies, um, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, um, socioeconomic status. And overall, everybody responds really well from the age of 18 through to 93. It's worked really well. So even 93-year-olds can play it. I mean, there was actually one little bit there that fascinated me in terms of it's almost as if that it's like the old adage, if if you're close to um, the scenario or have experience of dealing with these kind of symptoms and this goes for physical health as well as mental health if you're you're that close to it you tend to come up with the best ideas of trying to address it as well i mean if we can just touch upon wider mental health treatments and innovations at the moment i think for me i think it's since the pandemic especially since you know since the first lockdown people have been starting to talk about it a lot more i think people i think there was a, a gradual increase in mental health awareness before then but it seems to have you know shot up a little bit more with with the Mm -hmm. pandemic has technological innovation and attitudes followed it quickly enough in your opinion or is there still a lot more to do or is it both no absolutely i i've said this quite quite a lot in the past i think we were in some ways very lucky to have founded themia around about the or not around about right at the start of the pandemic Mm -hmm. of course we weren't selling we weren't you know um, working with clinics during the pandemic we started after but what's happened is we've certainly seen an increase in acceptance of technology way faster than I would expect we would have seen before the pandemic like also the shift to telehealth that's been massive like in mental health up until before the pandemic 90-95% of all therapy sessions were held in person. Um, During the pandemic, obviously, everything became digital. But after that, almost 90% of doctors and patients actually prefer to continue to do this um, virtually. And that's meant that tools like ours fit very nicely alongside telehealth, because you can monitor the patient remotely at home. They just before their session, they can get a link, they play the games, and then the results are sent to the clinician, essentially. So it's made it very, very easy to adopt. I would actually say that what's what's it's been beneficial but also detrimental has been the rise of chat gpt and generative ai mm-hmm. up until chat gpt you were seeing kind of like this really big um like this really big not not bubble not in the bad sense of a bubble but you know this hype around ai and what ai can do and you could see this in investment you could see this in kind of like how people were approaching things and people were really really excited now we're seeing with ChatGPT, people are still very excited, but at the same time, there's this fear that's come in that's been really new. We've seen it actually being a, maybe potentially a blocking factor. So we've been talking to, this hasn't been with clinics, but it's been with other types of companies. We, we had started conversations kind of just as ChatGPT was kind of becoming big, 
And at some point, we found in some of these companies, they had imposed top-down bans on AI within the company because of ChatGPT, because they didn't know how to regulate it, how to deal with it. And it's just all AI is bad. We're not using it, which is such a blanket, problematic reaction. Um, yeah, no nuance at all. No, it's just like it's just like a hammer. Mm. No, we're not accepting any innovation. So that's been quite interesting, unexpected. Um, but yeah, definitely the adoption has been way, way better than I expected it would have been, say, 10 years ago, for sure. I'm just coming on to the point where, you, where you're going on about, you know, basically the sledgehammer approach and no AI, no AI at all. Has that been blocking any progression from your point of view in terms of trying to accelerate Themia's, you know, capability almost? Yeah, I mean, for from our point of view, it's, th- there's also this really big distinction that we've had to kind of make very clear to people, because it doesn't seem like it's getting through to the general public or to a lot of companies is that now any company can say basically they are an AI company because they're plugging in ChatGPT or something equivalent. So everybody's got an AI company. There is a distinction between an AI consumer company, which plugs in ChatGPT, but they don't build ChatGPT themselves, versus an AI producer company, which is what we are. We build our own proprietary AI models that run very, very differently. And there is a massive difference between generative AI or you know ChatGPT style models um, that are used broadly versus what we do. And those are massive differences in terms of like the ethics of gathering data, you know, the the complex hurdles that we need to overcome in order to make sure that patient data is being sensitively and securely handled, things that kind of ChatGPT doesn't really take into consideration um, almost at all. And there is this really big gulf. And I feel like in the beginning, we didn't really have to necessarily deal with that as a problem. It has come into the light a lot more recently. And it's meant that, you know, we need to be making sure when we're talking to people that they are very fully aware of the difference and the distinction. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say it's blocked us. I would say we've had to, you know, deal with those kind of sledgehammer approaches sometimes and say, yeah. we appreciate what you're doing, but, you know, the, our system is very different. And, and I imagine that obviously with a little bit of, of bias from yourself that you would say that AI is probably one of the better ways of trying to tackle mental health conditions, even if it isn't the only one. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. I mean, um, the the big problem with mental health conditions has just been up until now, there haven't been really any objective ways of measuring it. And that's the main problem with mental health conditions is the subjectivity in people's assessments of it. It's meant um, also like there's there isn't that much knowledge at um, the less expert level, let's say, and also not much time. So a stat that not many people are aware of is that GPs actually, even though they are the first line of interaction with any mental health condition, at least in the UK, they can actually properly diagnose mental health issues um, in less than 50% of cases. So they're worse than chance at diagnosing a mental health condition. And yet they are the first layer of defense, let's say, um, of the healthcare system. So if you have an, a system that, like AI that can create objective handles and can help give those GPs you know, more accurate indices, then why wouldn't you use it? It's like saying the way we think of Themia is like, think of it like a blood pressure cuff, but for your your mental health. So in the same way that a blood pressure cuff monitors 
say your blood pressure, obviously, but helps you see whether somebody's healthy all the way through to when they're unhealthy. They it helps the clinician, but could never replace the clinician. That's exactly how we are with hemia. We measure, we can help, but we wouldn't replace. And that's actually really big in the acceptance that we've had as well, I think, from clinicians. And just going back to the the development of semia overall, I mean, I think you may you may have covered this in terms of you know for, from where you started from to where you are today. But how long from when you got the idea did it actually take to develop something that was tangible that you could present to someone and just say like this could really change lives? Yeah, I think I was very lucky in the sense of kind of it was almost serendipitous that I had the idea for Themia just after what happened to my friend and I was looking for a way to make it happen and as an academic I didn't really know how to make that happen and I happened across an accelerator program here in the UK Entrepreneur First who specialize in bringing together people from different backgrounds to help them form companies it's almost like Y Combinator but um, a little bit earlier stage and uh, UK and Europe based mm-hmm. and that's I joined the cohort and that's where I met Stefano my co-founder um, he's got very different background to mine he was originally a theoretical physicist that's what he did his PhD in and then he worked as a quant in large investment banks for about 10 years and he's really the AI genius if you'd like behind Themia I bring the neuroscience the linguistics he brings the AI side we met and that was a few months after what had happened with my friend So we met in April 2020, we kind of created the company, we got our first bit of investment through Entrepreneur First within three months, and then within 12 months, we had raised our first pre-seed round, and that's what allowed us to actually build our data moat. We built out the platform fully, and so within two years from founding, we'd built basically everything we needed out. And in the past year and a half, we've been testing the models, trialing them out. We're now actually live globally um, in several clinics and with mental wellness providers. So we're in the UK, we're also in Spain, the US, Brazil, Nigeria, Kenya, Indonesia. Um, so we've expanded uh, pretty pretty globally quite quickly. Um, and yeah, I would say people think it's a lot harder maybe than it is to have an idea and to make it work. It's just about potentially finding the right co-founder and finding the right circumstances to make it work. But yeah, it was pretty quick. Okay. And um, before I, you know, I ask the final question, I, which I always ask, I'm just wondering what you think of basically mental health provision in the UK at the moment. I mean, I, I think, we, we come across a lot of people that are struggling to basically find a way in. Yeah. Uh, but you, you, I think you actually, you, you touched upon Themia potentially being that open door if it, if it, if it works properly. But it feels like there needs to be some kind of remodeling of the treatment pathway almost. Yeah, it's it's a very sad reality. But unfortunately most of UK health provision is locked within the NHS, let's say. So the NHS kind of handles about, I would say, I don't know, 90% of of cases. And it just does not have the infrastructure and the funds to do that properly. So your first layer of defense is the GP. And the GP has maybe five, 10 minutes to talk to you. And if you don't go in explicitly with a mental health concern, they're never going to screen you for mental health. 
And even if they do screen you, then they're faced with the lack of kind of resources. And so they'll put you on a waiting uh, on a waiting list, potentially. That now can be like years, potentially, depending on the problem. It could take years to get help. And there's this massive gap of A, getting somebody seen when they need to be seen. So they have to speak up, which doesn't always happen. Understanding that there's an issue at that GP level in order to send them on. When they do get sent on, there's a massive gap of waiting. When they do get seen, they're not always seen by a psychiatrist. They're seen by a psychologist. They may then need to refer you to a psychiatrist. So you can see it's very long time. On average, it can take over 10 years for someone with depression to get the right treatment. And actually, a recent study in 2022, I believe, showed that actually over 75% of people with a mental health condition will never get the help that they need. That's not just in the UK, that's more broadly speaking. But I think the UK really, really epitomizes that problem in mental health um, treatment, tracking, provision. And I would love for a tool like Themia to be able to help by identifying the problem earlier, helping to signal to the GP what's happening, helping them to remotely monitor the patient, helping the psychiatrist get the right treatment faster. I would love that. But unfortunately, the NHS is not very welcoming to innovation. It's very, very difficult to get into. And it's kind of like the system is making you go away from it. We, we actually went to private, uh, to the private sector and abroad before ever looking at the NHS because they make it so hard, which is which is really sad because ultimately my friend kind of like failed um, to get the help she needed within the NHS and then subsequently privately, but it was the NHS that failed her initially. And it's such a common problem. And yet there are tools to fix it. It's just systematically problematic to get into. There's so much bureaucracy. It's, yeah, it's it's sad, but but that's just the way it is right now. Well, Amelia, I very much appreciated your insights today on, on the Mental Podcast. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Um, the last question I always ask our our guests is is there anything that you'd like to add to what you already said uh i mean thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure to be on here i guess just to highlight for world mental health day we actually are doing we're working with officially the world mental health day on a very big initiative to help employers test their employees mental well-being so we're offering every employer can actually sign up to have their employees take the mental well-being tests of Themia, and then they can get a report aggregated uh, for how their employees are doing. And that's something we're launching on World Mental Health Day. So as an employer, you can you can do that for free. Okay. Well, Emilia, thank you very much for your time. And uh, once again, we send the best wishes to, you, to your friend as well. Thank you so much. It's really kind yeah. of you. Thank you.